Hello and welcome to How To Medieval, the how-to where two guys show you how to do it between the two of them. I am Ari. And I'm Matt. And today we're going to talk about the difference between martial and civilian impressions and how building one or both of them can influence or be influenced by your impression. So Matt, what what do we mean by the difference between a martial and a civilian impression? Because in this in this time period, we don't really have standing militaries, so the term civilian is kind of a modern one we're pushing onto the subject for clarity. But I just want to make sure everyone understands what we're talking about. So the way I use martial versus civilian when I'm talking about this is basically anytime you're not doing anything military orientated, so you're not on a you're not a can't uh, you know portraying that you're on campaign for war. You're not portraying that you're a town guard somewhere you're, or a castle guard. Basically, if you're not walking around in your military gear, then you are playing portraying a civilian. Right, and I think it's important to remember for people that a martial impression does not always mean you're in armor and armed to the teeth because as you said there are martial impressions that involve being on campaign that don't necessarily mean you are on the battlefield so we're talking about the difference between when you're you're at home on the farm or at home at court depending on what your impression is versus what you would be doing if you were out in the field on a battlefield on the way to or from a battlefield that's the distinction that i see between a civilian and a martial impression because you can be out on the road on campaign or out on the road as a pilgrim, and those are completely different impressions. One's martial, one's civilian. Yeah, that's right. And you have to remember that for this time period, especially when you get into the upper classes, the military aspect of everything is, is really you know, intrinsic to what it meant to be an upper class male, you know, specifically. You know, when you reach a certain level of society, there was a certain militarism that you were expected in your everyday life. So true. But that's something I want to talk about, actually. And I guess we'll we'll work on that first because it's really pertinent to the conversation when we get to it a little later is in context, in period, a medieval noble would be expected to have a suit of armor and would be expected to have clothes that they could take on campaign because that's when we go back to feudalism, your martial obligation, your your obligation to war is part of what makes you, quote, deserve all the, the money and prestige that you get as a noble compared to, say, a commoner who has to be hired to go to war. However, we also see, depending on what century you're in, we see things like the seize of arms where you are required to have a certain level of capability. You know, you're supposed to have certain types of armor, or a certain weapon, even as a commoner, in case that you needed to be levied or hired to war. But sometimes I think people conflate the expectation in period to an expectation in reality. And this comes a lot from many groups have their authenticity and clothing standards that include from a group's point of view the expectation that if you're going to play a noble 
then you sh- have to have both a soft and a hard kit, or you have to have armor and you have to have dress clothes. And I wonder, my personal opinion here is that I'm not certain that any impression you do should require you to have the same material possessions that your impression would portray because at what point should someone who portrays a knight be required also to own a horse because all almost all knights were mounted combatants and how many of them own two hides of land i i don't have hundreds of acres of property should i be what what is the line that re, you are required to have when you make your impression and and answering that question for yourself and answering that question for the group that you participate is a very important one when you're trying to decide, am I going to put together a martial impression or a civilian impression? And also, which one of them is required to do the other? And there are some people out there who feel like you should have to have a soft kit to make a hard kit. And that's kind of a harder subject, too. Uh, I don't know what your opinion on this is. I I think it all has to do with what what you're doing at the time and what your group is doing at the time. I mean, so I have, you know, I have a hard kit, so, you know, this is a full suit of armor and I also have some clothes, you know, soft kit. I, you know, I, I've never worn both at the same time. <laughs> hey, you only so, got the one body, right? Exactly. I mean, if I'm for the day portraying that I am an, uh, you know, somebody on campaign gearing up for battle, I'm going to be in my, in my armor. And probably will leave my, you know, clothes at home. If I'm going to an event, you know, for a feast, I'm probably gonna, I'm gonna bring my clothes, wear my clothes and leave my armor at home. But I, so that says, well, you know, so you both need, you need both of those for doing those things. Well, I, it depends on what you want to do. If you only want to go to events that are feasts, then you'll never need a suit of armor. If you only want to go and portray a nobleman on campaign, then you might never need the soft kit, just the under trappings of, of the hard kit. So it, it's all about context. It's all about working with what, with what you mean. Let's face it. None of this stuff is, is necessarily inexpensive. Even if you start making it yourself, it's not necessarily inexpensive. So don't bankrupt yourselves outfitting yourself to befit both the Martial and civilian impression of a, you know, 14th century noble person because that, that's gonna, that's gonna set you back. Absolutely it will. And you can wear, and we'll talk about this a little bit in the future when we talk about the, the difference between knights and archers and men at arms, which is a different conversation that Matt and I have already talked about having in a separate episode. You can have a lot of the same physical structures to say an armor suit of armor that you would want as a commoner man of arms and a knight it sometimes it just really boils down to the ornamentation there are not depending on the time period you're portraying especially when we're talking about what matt and i do the late 14th early 15th centuries there's not a lot of difference structurally between what the common person in a full suit of armor and a noble person a full suit of armor would wear with the exception of what they could afford to ornament their armor with to display whether or not they were worth ransoming. But when it came to protecting yourself and the fundamentals of what armor pieces were available, everyone kind of had access to the same thing, just at different 
levels of quality. It's not like knights had access to specific items, you know, a helmet or a breastplate that other people did not have access to, even if we find that there are times when the lower classes may have worn something different. So you were talking before a little bit about the, you mentioned the trappings of a hard kit. So we're talking about a martial kit. We say the word hard kit. Hard kit doesn't involve all pieces of metal, correct? Exactly. I mean, and you may have what we would call a hard kit that isn't even really hard. I mean, padded armor was a thing. You know, a padded jack was a a well documented and well widely worn, um, you know, armor material. But it was made. It was padded material. So, it, it your your hard kit basically is just our slang and, and reenactor slang for your armor. And lots of armor had a combination of things that we would consider, quote, soft because they're made of material and metal that we would consider to be a protective item. So when you see a lot of you would wear a gambeson or an akaton or some quilted or reinforced fabric garment over the top of something like mail because they worked a lot better in concert with each other than they did independently of each other. And so you would see a lot of fabric things that were fundamental elements up to and including the supporting garments for, you know, a suit of plate requires certain things that you tie the plates onto. It's not like a motocross has, you can just strap on all over the place. You actually had to, to tie it to a sub garment, an arming jacket or a, or a, a gambeson that was designed to receive, be the base layer and receive the armor on top of it. So when we go and do these martial impressions, we can see everything from the man with no armor, you know, a, a lowly peasant archer with just his bow and maybe a helmet, up to the mounted, fully encased in metal knight. What are the variations we see in civilian kits? Well, civilian kits, we see sort of the same thing. We can see a, you know, lowest of the low barefoot peasant, basically, in just their frays and chosses and a linen shirt and maybe a coif, you know, out there working the fields. Or we can go all the way up to, you know, these rich brocades, fur-lined hooplons, you know, that are being worn by the, uh, you know, upper echelon. So it, there is that still that that wide range now if we start from the bottom out though or the skin out so a lot of us like to portray when we do these things skin out that means that the very base of what we're wearing is historically accurate and a lot of these base layers except for you know things like what ari mentioned about quality all these base layers are the same thing for the poorest of the poor as they were for the richest of the rich. You know, you have the linen undershirt and the linen braise that you would attach your um, sauces to. So that's and, yeah. No, you have a good point that not only is that translated both from low to high, but from civilian to martial impression, some of these, you know, base layers like your braise are the same for both. There's not a special set of fighting underwear to your everyday underwear. And though some people may or may not wear a shirt under their arming jacket, depending on which particular manual they are bringing their impression out of, sometimes the shirt you just wear underneath 
your outermost garment under your gown or under your jacket or under your doublet is the same one you'd wear under your armor, except maybe you would in reality have two or three so that the ones that get dirty aren't the ones yeah. you have to wear to work the next day. But so I think that's what leads a lot of people to say you should get yourself a civilian outfit first, because I think the minority of reenactors have five or six different shirts. Like me, as my modern wardrobe, I've got a closet full of shirts. I wear a different shirt every day at work and you put it in the wash. But a reenactment shirt either involves a heavy investment in time or a heavy investment in cost. It's not like you can buy a shirt for, you know, the, the same amount you can get as a, a cheap work shirt today. You go out and get some T-shirts, you can get a pack of them for less than half of what you can get for a split neck or St. Louis collar style shirt off of, say, historic enterprises. So a lot of people may only have one or two of these base garments and just use them for everything that they have to layer on top of. And so people well, say, well, like if you me. get your – go ahead. As I say, that's like me. I've got, I've got two. I've got uh-huh. two shirts. One I wear under my arming gear because it gets nasty, and one I wear under my regular clothes. Same thing mm-hmm. with uh, braids. I've got two sets of braids. One I wear under my army gear and one I wear under my regular clothes. So, But you could, if you really needed to, if you needed to spend that last 60 bucks on something else, you could wear that same shirt for both and just wash it. Yeah, Whereas if you have an arming doublet, you can't really wear the arming doublet to a feast. I mean, I suppose you could orchestrate some reason why, but then we're going back to that justifications issue we got with last episode. So that's not nearly as translatable back and forth as say some of these base, like I said, skin out underclothes, which is why a lot of people suggest you go ahead and get yourself a civilian outfit first. Now, have you encountered more martial events or civilian events? Because the majority of the ones I've gone to kind of their each event is both. And so I haven't necessarily found that, I wear one more than the other, except for the fact that when I do like videos, I tend to wear my civilian kit more. But when it comes to actual events, I tend to have go to these events where I do a martial impression. And then by the end of the day, I'm doing a civilian impression because we're going to like a feast or something at the end of the day. So that's what most of my time uh, coming up to the SCA was actually was doing both because I, I used to be a rattan fighter in the SCA. So I would go to an event, usually in my arming clothes, gear up, and fight all day. And then I would change and hang around and, and, you know, for the parties and stuff like that. But I'd be in civilian clothes. Sometimes I'd stay in just my arming stuff, just be easier. But, but now that I'm not fighting anymore, I find that I am doing, going to a lot more just civilian and how Many people actually do just go to these things for just civilian because, and some people actually have what we would call a martial kit, like an archer or something like that, but they're wearing it as a, a day clothes. They're not because they're not fighting or shooting or anything like that. It's more of just they, their persona is, is that. You know, you've got an interesting point there. We're talking about how you can wear your underwear on both martial and civilian impressions. There are, there are plenty of social classes of people who would go to war in whatever they had because they weren't the type of people who had a whole second outfit 
And the only difference between their martial impression and their civilian impression is whether or not they're wearing a helmet and holding a bow. And that's a perfectly valid impression. And that sort of helps bridge the gulf between, well, I've got an event where I have to do both of these impressions. Maybe you're not, you know, fighting it like an SCA event where you literally do need specific protection. But if you're going to an event where you're going to be representing a commoner on campaign, you can get away with wearing one kit in both impressions. However, you do have two separate impressions even if they're using almost the same clothing. You've got this Venn diagram where the majority of it is between the two circles. There are certain elements that you would not wear to dinner and certain elements that you would not wear to war. And we talked a little bit about this before, about how your archer may not have you know, worn their belt on the battlefield with their pouch on it. They would have just taken only the things they needed to survive that fight and then go back to having a campaign or, or civilian outfit after that was done. And, and I think that might actually get into, though, why groups tell you to do a civilian first is because you actually you, you can get more mileage out of the civilian trappings. Um, you know, you can you can use them, like you said, for both martial by throwing on a helmet, picking up your bow or just regular civilian day-to-day stuff. So I guess the real thing is it depends on, you know, what what do you want to portray? You're not going to be able to wear your dirty civilian peasant clothes and take the field and say, I'm the Count of Anjou. So that's just not going to work. Um, it's if you're portraying an archer, and you're just going to throw a helmet on and pick up your bow, then yeah, you can you can certainly do it with just the civilian clothes. That's one way in which a commoner impression and a noble impression do not operate the same, because a commoner impression can very well just throw a helmet and a hauberk and grab a, a polearm, and now they are a martial impression. Now they are taking the field in what would legitimately in many situations, be what they may have been able to take with them. Whereas a noble, there isn't that option. No noble just threw a helmet and a breastplate over their doublet and had at it. They just were too wealthy to have to go back and forth in this way. And it would be you would be kind of the laughing stock if you were to do something like that. It just wouldn't make any sense. It's like putting putting a tactical vest over your Armani suit. You know, you're, you're going to take that off and put something else on before you you go to war, because almost there are very few situations in which someone is is ambushed while they're wearing their party clothes and need to hastily put on just enough armor to survive. You know, that's right. And um, I'm just doing a quick search here. It's like especially when you're portraying wealthy. It's like how many suits of armor did Henry the Eighth have that we know of? Know of? I mean, they had he had armor for multiple different occasions. So, and he's he's a king, but even even lesser yeah. nobles would bring a new suit of armor to every tournament to show off. It's the whole idea of of think of a celebrity bringing a different dress to every award ball they go to or gala you never seeing being seen in the same thing twice is they would they would do that with their armor 
as well. Exactly. And Armor, oh, well, I actually had an interesting discussion with, with uh, a friend of mine via Facebook uh, about a month ago because he was talking about how he's just so much more interested in the fashion of the 15th century and not the armor. He thinks the armor is boring. And I'm like, well, armors, you know, once you get into the upper tier of society, armor was fashion. Armor dictated fashion. It followed fashion. You know, it, it, you wanted to have the fashionable armor of the day, like you said, to show off at tournament or something, because if not, people, your, you know, your street cred basically would fall. So that is something to remember, especially when you get, you know, farther along in the upper eras of, of the, you know, medieval time period. Was, you know, these things did follow fashion, especially for the upper years of society you know there was i believe i believe i was, was reading there was a i was trying to remember the source of this and there's a you know a basically a nobleman who who liked the old style of helmets and he would wear them and, and they would mock him because he was wearing the he, you know he never i think it was like the he he, he the nobleman liked this the bassinets with the male aventail. And this was around the time when the great bassinet with the big steel collar was coming into style. And he didn't like them. He didn't like wearing them. And he, they made fun of him because he liked wearing, it's like, he liked wearing his grandfather, grandfather's armor. They would tell him, I'll see if I can find that source and, and get it up. I, Cause that was, it's a great sort of, you know, fashion shaming, you know, proof that fashion shaming is sort of, Timeless. It's been going on forever. Right. They did not share Macklemore's fashion philosophy. No thrift shop. No. <laughs> and so that's you know we were talking about. That's a great way to differentiate between a martial and a civilian impression is how much different does your armor or your martial impression look from your civilian impression? And the, the way to answer that question has a lot to do with what is the status and what is the social standing of your impression? And that, you know, we, I think we'll always be harping on this because it's something very difficult for the newer reenactor to really embrace how truly important this idea of social status was. It's hard sometimes to bring someone in who doesn't live in a situation, hasn't studied the situation enough to really get the reasons why we see conspicuous consumption and all of this, you know, you go into these nuanced conversations about why did sanctuary laws exist and such like that. It was a huge deal. If you didn't look right, then there was no way to check your Instagram following to see if you truly are as cool as you say you are. You had to show it with what you wore. And if you didn't dress right, then you wouldn't be taken seriously by many people. And if you wanted to, you want to portray those types of roles. You have to follow those types of mindsets, especially, especially when you're doing martial impressions, because that's what we were talking about before is your martial impression. If you don't understand your status will not follow the aesthetics it needs to because a martial impression and a civilian impression can be 
radically different things, or they can be just very nuanced different things. And that's entirely down to your social status. And you only know your social status from understanding your time and place for your impression. Now, I'm going to go into this in a little detail, more detail on a mini episode. Um, but there's, there's some misconceptions about social status and what that actually meant during this time frame. And we, we, we know now that you weren't, it wasn't a caste system as we might think of it. You weren't necessarily locked into one social status for the entirety of your life. Was it amazingly difficult to break out of and change your social status? Yes, it was. But specifically, once you get more towards the end of what we think of the medieval era, things were starting to starting to change. And it's the same thing you remember when you get into the you know, civilian side of it as well. It wasn't just nobles and peasants going on here. It, you know, just because you say you want to only portray a civilian you know, portrayal doesn't mean that you have to be in rags on the side of the road begging. You know, there was a wide stretch, especially in England that we know of, starting in the um, late 13th century, the creation of what's called the yeoman class or the yeomanry. And the yeoman class, which was yeomans were um, free landholders. They were able to have their own land and, and um, you know, make money off their own land. They, the economic, um, like the, the socioeconomic scale for these guys was, was huge. You had yeomen who were dirt poor rock farmers. And then it spanned all the way up to yeomen who were richer than some nobles. So there's this swath of socioeconomic, um, you know, differences that can be portrayed. You're not locked into one or the other of either you're a noble who has a full suit of armor, 16 horses, and has the finest clothes you can wear, or a dirt farming peasant who eats rocks in water to survive. I'm just trying to wrap my head around eating rocks. <laughs> that goes you know back what? to the whole idea, is water a mineral? Exactly. But you know what I'm trying to say with this? Right. No, I get you. No, I understand. And so when we're thinking of considerations for martial and civilian impressions, we have a lot of choices that give us the freedom to express ourselves and express parts of history that we really like the most. So there's what I'm getting at from what you're saying is that there's so much option that no one should feel locked into doing any one particular role just because they've been invited to a martial event or they've been invited to a civilian event. However, it is important to be able to distinguish between the two of them. And I would like to talk a little bit more about campaign impressions because they are kind of the the synthesis of civilian and martial impressions. And I think that's where a lot of people get tripped up is how do you portray yourself in a martial context off the battlefield? And it's really easy to say, OK, well, I know how I should dress if I'm in a tournament or I know how I should dress if I'm going to a ball. 
But what exactly is that middle ground? What kind of things would you expect someone to wear on campaign, but not in active battle? That's actually a really good distinction, Ari, is in the, the martial impressions can really be broken down into those two camps. You have the campaign impressions, which tend to be more of the nitty-gritty work-a-day, you know, war camp type impressions, and the tournament impressions, which are more flashy, showy, showing-off type things. And they both call for different styles of, well, both armor and clothing. So um, focusing, like you said, just on the campaign of it, um, yeah, there are basic, again, there's still that swath of, you know, the economic range to portray, especially, you know, if you're being the force of the poor archer who's in the retinue all the way up to the knight who's leading the retinue. So I think the underpinnings, like I said, are the same. They go, if no matter what you do, civilian or martial, you need the underpinnings of the shirt, the braids, the chosses, the shoes. Those are going to be different only in basically material quality, depending on what status that you're portraying. And from there, that's when you look at how much money do I want to spend? How much money can I spend to get what I want out of it? And you, you build up from there. I find a campaign impression to be a great opportunity to show off those arming clothes in a way that doesn't necessarily get seen as well when you're just wearing your armor, especially when you're talking about, say, a, a public event where you're showing, you're demonstrating like a camp to your the public that you've brought in. So we have a lot of indication that people on campaign would just sort of wear their armor instead of carrying it in a bag. You know, the baggage train was for shoes of arrows and food and there was a very select few people who could just put their stuff on a wagon. And so even some of the, you know, lesser nobility, you know, you think of your, your knight bachelor who's following the actual knight who's the bannerman of the retinue there and who's running the, the company. They, they also would be say, you know, that we talked before about how maybe one knight would have the tent and his own personal squires who may or may not, or his own personal knights, would sleep in the tent with him. There wasn't a ton of space out on the road. And so when you're thinking of a, a campaign impression, when I think of a campaign impression, I'm thinking about if you're not at war, but you, you're sitting in camp and you've downgraded some of your armor, but you wouldn't have changed all the way into civilian clothes unless the civilian clothes were the only ones you brought. I'm not certain. And I suppose there's a lot more research that can go into this, but from what I've, encountered so far i don't intuit that a lot of people brought a change of clothes with them to war and so you have this opportunity i think i think it's an underutilized opportunity to show off arming clothes and that foundation that is required to wear other armor that we we can only really show in a situation where you would be wearing your armor soon but not right at the moment which is really only on in camp on campaign. Exactly. You know, exactly. And, and that the sort of multi stages of dress, I, I agree, is really only something that you can really achieve on um, with the campaign imp impressions. 
because if you're doing a civilian impression, you know, for the most part, you're not walking around in your underwear, you know, in camp telling people how you get dressed. You're fully dressed telling people about camp. It's an interesting exception in that we talk about how, sure, we have depictions of peasants working in the field wearing their hose rolled down and just their shirt. But you, you know, you would not be expected to go back into town that way. After you were done laboring, you put on your clothes and leave the field. And there are fewer opportunities at, say, public events to demonstrate legitimately why you would be wearing your underwear. However, a lot of events demonstrate like active war campaigns, active war camps. And that's a great place to show off your arming clothes where you Otherwise, may have had to make some sort of concession to be able to demonstrate what you were wearing underneath your armor. Yeah, that's right. I I agree with that completely. <laughs> now, have you ever encountered civilian-based events that would give you the opportunity to show off some other form of civilian attire, such as while you're laboring or working at a specific task, you you know, wearing specific sort of protective uh, equipment, aprons, using tools, things like that. So, I mean, that's the, the thing about the, one of the good things about the SCA is that, well, it's a good and bad thing, but we'll, we'll get into that, um, is that you do actually see people, for the most part, using clothes and items and accessories as they would have been used, because it is, it's, it's all about doing and actually doing things, not just showing things. So, if uh, now here's the the big if and the the good and bad as I was saying, if you are viewing a person who is actually trying to be one hundred percent accurate in what they're doing, then you get to see these things being used. A lot of people in the SCA aren't necessarily there for the accuracy; they're there. For the medievalish, medievalesque, you know, experience, the glamping, the the parties, the hitting people with sticks. They're not necessarily all there for the history part of it. But you do get those rare glimpses of the of the people who are there fully for the history part of it. That will be like a blacksmith with their handmade leather apron you know, using tongs that are perfectly designed to fit their portrayal and things like that. So now, and and I've never seen a medieval one that is all like that up where I am. You do get into some of the 18th century and even some late 17th century reenactment stuff up here um, where they do they do do that there is actually a great place not far away from me called uh, old fort western and they are in augusta maine they're a living history museum that brings in reenactors they do a, a french and indian war they do 1754 so they're mid 18th century and that's a good place to go to see a bunch of um, and they hold events, of course, the show where other groups come in and, and do stuff there as well that fit their time period. And you can see more of that in between. But then again, because it is a fort, 
most of them do also revolve around that military aspect and that military camp aspect. So, mm-hmm. but it, that reminds it, me of some of the demonstrations you can get at like Colonial Williamsburg, where you go in and they're like, "Oh, this is our actual brewery, and we actually brew things, and we are going to do it in real time, in real clothes, and things like that." And we, I kind of experienced that a little bit on on the ships when I worked there as uh, 19th century, it would do 1830s. And we have depictions and descriptions of how, say, a sailor would go into town and how they would be dressed and then how they would be dressed out at sea for the convenience of doing the job of actually being a sailor. And we were able to represent that a little bit by adjusting our costume during the course of the program. So the program would start with bringing people aboard from the shore, but then Halfway through the program, we're under the pretenses and auspices that we've been at sea for a while. And so you sort of change how you dress. And then you, there are, you know, there were groups who went ashore and you would, you would make sure that you were dressed appropriately for shore versus when you got back to the boats and things like that. And I wonder if there's not an opportunity for more events to showcase the active part of civilian dress because we talk about we have, okay, you have this variety of impressions you can do between full battle and campaign outfit, and we have lots and lots of events that are based around wars and battles and being on campaign. And I think there's a there's a opportunity to do more events if we could just figure out, you know, we have to sort of think about how they could be done that would demonstrate and give people the opportunity to demonstrate field impressions like out in the fields as commoners or working at a particular craft or doing some sort of active and non-martial aspect of medieval daily life. I'm kind of curious to see if we can maybe pull that off sometime because I think there's not as much of that as there could be. Well, and so there is a great group. You've heard of um, the webpage Exploring the Medieval Hunt? Uh, Yes, I have. And so they have a, a sister page exploring the medieval farm. Yeah, they and made those hay towers. And exactly. So this is, a, this, barley. Is, yeah. this is a, a group of people who are in, and I don't know if they're specifically a group. I think they're more of a, a loose association of different reenactors who, who try out things and do what they like. And they're in Sweden, and they have, they have two web pages I know of, exploring the medieval hunt and exploring the medieval farm. And they the farm they've actually... So they they do exactly what you were talking about, Ari. They're not so much events as, I'm sorry, it's exploring the medieval farmer, not exploring the medieval farm. But we'll put a link down in the description. Yeah, they don't necessarily do events so much as they just sort of get together and do things. Um, I think they definitely are more leaning towards exploratory archaeology like you and I discussed earlier over yeah. doing some sort of demonstration. And that's really good. I, I love watching their stuff and I, you know, I watch their page and things and I read the blog. There isn't a blog for the farmer version, but there is, they do or had been posting some articles on the hunt side to sort of better explain some of the things like using the bell rope that they pulled out of a manual and things like that. They do have a Facebook page. So they do. They we'll do. link to, to yeah, all the different that, places so. I can find them. Um, so, yeah, and I think that's really the best way, though, if you want to do these civilian impressions where they're doing more of the day-to-day things 
I don't necessarily know you can do it as a large event and more of a exploratory event like that because mm-hmm. um yeah you still have them open to the public and you can still sort of you know advertise that you're having this medieval haying day right to show how how they they did that but i don't know if if it's something that you could do it's not you know that you definitely could do it at like days of nights because unless you brought in like a field of hay that you could cut and stack and then take right. away with you you know it's you Plus it's not work for nights yeah couldn't do the day yeah, nights exactly. it'll be day <laughs> it's the day no. <laughs> uh, but yeah it's like and, and really I mean, to be honest folks this is where you get into some sort of the hardcore nerdery of this the, the general public likes to see the nights and on a, on a, it is flashier yeah it is flashier and on some level they like to see things like cooking and some of the stuff like that. But when you were talking about, you know, hey, who wants to go to an event and we can, you know, watch people stack hay? You know, like, yeah, that's... Uh, well, that's when you describe it like that, it sounds far less engaging. <laughs> <laughs> um, it'd be interesting to talk to the guys and, and, and women who do both the Medieval Hunt and Medieval Farm to see, you know, exactly how they are setting these up are these mini events where it's like the group comes together and does these events for fun just for personal enjoyment are they open to the public for people to come watch them and teach the public is it are they hosting these events to have social media content to educate the public through social media um so but yeah i I don't i don't know how you would bill a it would be a lot of fun to have like a medieval farming day, but you'd, you'd have to find the right place to do it. I think, and I think that's where the, the big struggle is going to come. That's In true. Do- I'm not yeah. sure your, your average New York reenactor is going to have access to a large field of hay. Exactly. Or but this do- is an interesting, this is an interesting opportunity to maybe explore some of those qualities of digital interaction where this is something that, you know, possibly is can be done more as a like you said a demonstration but over over the net where people can attend without having to go out and get hay fever and i think it goes back to what you said that it's more it might be more of an experimental archaeology thing because and really it gets to the point of why are you why are you doing you know why are you doing it? are you doing it for the personal enrichment of i think this could be cool i want to do it are you doing it to educate somebody else are you doing it to prove a theory of something? So, or are you just, you know, doing it to get, to bring a big, a large group of people together? And, and that's the real question for, well, for any of these events, really, is, is why are you doing it? It's like military timelines, especially in the U.S., seem to be a staple of we're doing it to bring people in to see what we're doing show off these sort of civilian and the civilians while people go to the military timelines as civilians uh, it, it still revolves around that military camp following thing like that i think well, when you get into europe and the uk and things like that they may have more of these you know cultural heritage days where they're doing more civilian activities like 
cooking in the Hampton Court Palace kitchens to you know, bringing the public in so they can see, you know, things like that, because it's considered more of a heritage, you know, activity. That's true. And it's harder is, to bring yeah. a cottage in the cottage kitchen with you to an event. Whereas if you have a place like Hamlin Medieval Village, people then can come to your physical structures and that gives you the opportunity to do things more like that. But even then, when you think of things like medieval villages, when they're not heritage sites and they are built that way, they are probably, and not having gone and built one myself, I suspect that the majority of them are built for the interests of exploring history first and then the public are brought in second. I'm guessing. I agree. I agree. We're getting a little off trap here now. Now we're talking we about are. heritage village. So, so back to the the civilian sort of portrayal of clothing, and and why having a good base for a civilian, you know, it it actually opens you up to more portrayals, really, by just adding or subtracting different accessories, because. A civilian tailor is going to wear the same thing that a civilian shopkeeper is wearing, that's wearing the same thing as a civilian shoemaker. You know, the the clothing was the same, just depended on quality and, like you said, ornamentation as you go up and down that, that economic scale. So with different accessories... You can one day say, okay, well, today I'm going to portray a tailor. Tomorrow I'm going to portray a cook. So, and just by swapping out your needle and thimble for an apron and taking off, you know, a layer, you're suddenly a cook. And it, it does open things up for you, I think. As opposed to Marshall, where I guess you can do the same thing, but I mean, if you've spent three thousand dollars on a full suit of armor you're probably going to want to wear that as much as you possibly can Mm -hmm. no yeah there's a huge draw to wearing things that you invest in which is why conversations like these are important to have with yourself so you know what it is that you want to invest in for instance if you're going to invest in a three thousand dollar suit of armor but you're not going to go to many martial events or you're going to a martial event with a group that has very rigid standards on who is and isn't allowed to portray what role and you are, you know, you're lower man on the totem pole and somebody's already filled up all the man at arms slots and they want you to come as an archer. That could be very discouraging if you didn't know ahead of time or you didn't think through ahead of time. So I suppose, you know, wrapping up, having expressed all our thoughts, it's, uh, we may owe, even if we have different answers to this, we may owe it to the listener to say, what, what do you think is it required or should it be required for someone to get a civilian outfit before a martial outfit? Or is it okay to get a martial outfit and then figure out the soft clothes later? I actually thought I just thought of really quick one more point why it might be a good yeah. idea to get your civilian outfit first. If you suddenly decide that you don't want to do this anymore... <laughs> It is easier to get rid of your clothing than your armor. That's true. Well, now armor can sell fairly quickly. Okay. However, if you have a very like well-fitted suit of armor, it will then not fit somebody else, and so all the money that you spent on tailoring it does not necessarily have the same resale value that 
just a stock piece of armor does. So say you have a, a pair of arms that cost you $2,000 to make because they were expertly crafted to your measurements. Well, they may not be worth $2,000 to somebody else. They may just be worth four or $500 because that's what you can get on the market for a pair of arms, you know? So you do have a really good point there that especially good armor does not resell nearly as well as good clothing does. Yeah, exactly. And so that's another thing to always think about when, um, you know, buying things is, you know, a lot of us, you know, Ari and I and a lot of other reenactors, we, we talk about, if you ask us who to go to for armor, we're going to throw out names like Jeff, Jeff Wasson or um, Jeff Free Hedgecock and things like that. Some of, the, you know, some of the best in the U.S. and even the world. Well, that's because we've been doing this for 20 years and we know we want to do it and we want to keep doing it. So we're going to we're OK with investing that type of money for the custom fitted stuff. Um, and it, it also. And this could be another uh, episode as, as well. The I don't know if you and um, I don't know if you'd gone over this already, but the divide between make and buy, which is always, always we did have. We did have a fairly long conversation on make and buy with Todd and I, though maybe we should listen to that again sometime and, and see whether or not we we have more things to add to it. It might be a good mini episode to get your thoughts on uh, that conversation because my thoughts haven't changed on it at all. I'm still 100% team buy because I hate making things and I'm terrible at making things and I will never make things as well as someone who's dedicated to that. And I think, it is a far better use of my time to go to work and then throw money at people who know what they're doing than to try and figure it out myself. I, I'm sort of in the same boat as that as well. My thought on that was coming back to, you know, when you're putting together an impression, you know, if you want to portray a noble person and you want to wear the armor of a noble person, you know, uh, that's something I'm going to buy because it'll take me 20 years teaching myself to armor to get to the level to have what they would have had for that portrayal. So and that's just not something that's ever going to happen. By the time I get to the level of nice, now I have the exact replica of Henry V's Agincourt armor that I made myself. Now it's time for me to retire because I'm uh, 70 years old. So it's <laughs> too old to wear it. Exactly. Yeah. It's, too old to wear it. it's not anything you want to do, but that's that definitely another conversation. But it also, when you're doing a civilian and the clothing, and especially the lower economic level of the civilian clothing, you have a little more leeway of making things as opposed to, you know, buying a pre-made upper level quality garment. I definitely agree with you there. And there are things, I mean, there are things that I could probably make myself and they would pass as perfectly medieval. I just... Personally, I know I wouldn't enjoy it because I don't enjoy making things. I know I'm probably one of the three reenactors out there who didn't get into this because they liked making things. So many people gravitate towards this because they enjoy making things. And that's just that's just not how my brain operates. I'd rather talk about things and dress pretty than to make a thing. And it's just how my my brain operates. So I well, my final answer, I suppose, would be that I I do think that there is value in the progression of starting with a soft kit because it is the the least financially investing and it is the easiest to you know pull the 
the ejection chair on if you find you don't really like what's going on. And as we've talked about, it's the easiest way to transition from a civilian kit to a martial kit because a a commoner's outfit can be with only a minimal amount of investment turned into a martial impression. And that doesn't happen the same way at the at the full suit of armor noble level. And I think the only exception to that are there are people who they may be into HMB or into harness vectin or some of the armored combat type things. And there are plenty of people out there who can do that as their main hobby. They're they're just a hemaist who wants to do fully armored fighting that will get their martial impression. And they may not even really reenact. They may not even call it an impression. We we just impose that term upon them. And they never have a need to get any type of civilian outfit at all. But those are really the exception to the rule. The average person who comes to reenact, I think, will benefit them most. And they'll get the most mileage if they start with a civilian impression and then move on to a martial impression. Because it's very difficult to wear your armor all day and then go to feast and then pack up your van and keep the fire lit in armor. But you can do a full day event in civilian outfits and... Really, if we want to use historical context, people wore their armor as a minority sliver of their life, and they wore civilian clothes as a majority sliver of their life. You know, when you were your daily activities, if you counted up all the hours that you were in armor, even as a knight versus in civilian dress, you're going to spend a vast majority of your life in soft clothes over your armor. I, I agree with everything he just said in that whole monologue. There we go. Fantastic. <laughs> so we've solved it. We've cracked the case. I mean, your mileage may vary. It really depends on your group. And there will be plenty of people out there who just want to get, they, they want to be a knight and they want their, their great helm and they want their mail and they want their surcoat and they want their sword and they, you know, to hell with the rest. And that's okay if that's what they want to get out of their game. But I don't think that's the, that's the greatest long-term strategy. Cause if you notice the majority of those people who do that, they either burn out or they eventually get themselves a soft kit anyway and kind of wish that they had had it first. That That's very true. And like you said, I, I really think figuring out what you want to do first depends on what you want to get out of it and what, you, you know, what group you're part of, what you want to get out of it. Are you a person who likes going to Ren fairs, being a knight, but you want to be a, you know more historically dressed than other people? Then you're probably going to want the armor and not the not the soft clothes. Are you a full, you know, full bore reenactor that wants to reenact a, you know, a household both at home and on campaign? Well, then you're going to need both and you just need to figure out what level of the that economic scale you want to fall on. There we go. This was a good conversation. I'm glad that we yeah. got to talk about this today. And we'll do, I think we've got a couple of uh, mini ones that are going to spin off from this too. And I think one of our next episodes also, maybe maybe not next time or who knows what we do, but we'll be, um, we're going to break down that Marshall idea even more. We're going to talk about the uh, differences between, you know, an arch, a soldier, an archer and a man at arms. So we'll really get into that. Absolutely. I do look forward to talking about that, especially since we both do sort of a, an English impression, and that's a really huge distinction in English living history impressions of the late 14th century, early 15th, though, is really truly applicable to a lot of continental impressions as well. 
that'll be a good conversation to have. It will be. And that might actually spawn some more mini episodes too, folks, because there really is, especially in the English context, this microcosm of social movement within the military class. So it's really kind of fascinating. It sort of breaks a lot of misconceptions of, of what we think the medieval military class really was like. Uh, so that's definitely something we can get into, too. Fantastic. Well, I'm glad you guys were all here with us today to join us in this conversation. If you, too, like wearing your plate armor over your Armani suits, go ahead and give us five stars on wherever you're listening to us on. That helps bump us up in the search ratings so that we can get our message out to more people. It's a little thing that you can do to help boost us and help us get to the audience that needs to hear what we have to say. Until next time. I appreciate you listening. Bye. Bye.